Bob Ari Redboard. Welcome to TRM Talks. TRM Talks is brought to you by TRM Labs, the leading provider of anti-money laundering software and blockchain intelligence. Today, we have a very special guest, Laura Shin, the host of the Unchained podcast and someone covering the crypto space longer than absolutely anyone else out there. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for joining TRM Talks. Thanks for having me. And just a little factual correction. There are journalists who've been covering it longer than I have. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Absolutely. Um, I, uh, you know, I've been honored to uh, be on Unchained a number of times. And um, I think this sort of opportunity to talk uh, a little bit just about what's, with so much going on in the crypto space, um, really not just this week, but this year and over the last, um, you know, several months, I'm just really excited to kind of uh, sit down with you and, and chat a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get to it. Let's do it. So, um, you know, honestly, like, so I, so I mentioned someone covering the space really, uh, longer than anyone. Well, you're really sort of the first, um, you know, journalist to cover the space, uh, full time. And, um, I, I think that that journey is just so interesting. Um, would you talk a little bit about sort of your journey to the space and, and, um, and, and give us a sense of sort of how you made that transition? Yeah. Yeah. I had been covering, uh, personal finance. And, um, I think I'd been covering it maybe about four years or something. And I was getting, you know, just a little antsy to do something different. Um, it's, it's not very much like crypto in the sense that it doesn't change a lot. (laughs) Um, so I kind of was getting to the point where I felt like I'd really learned kind of most everything. Um, and so my editors at Forbes threw me a bone because they knew that I was feeling the need to do something else. And they said, hey, we have this idea to do this Forbes FinTech 50 list. Do you want to head it up with another reporter? So she and I divided it into categories. And I took the category of digital currency and just became completely obsessed. I mean, for anybody who is in crypto, we all talk about that moment where you go down the rabbit hole. And what I just love about covering crypto is, you know, you start with a question and then you kind of answer that question. But then what you learn there just leads to another question. And then, you know, then what you learn there leads to yet another question. And then eight years later, you're still, you know, fascinated by this and can't That's stop trying to learn. That's yes, exactly. Ra- I love that. That's exactly <laughs> rabbit hole defined. Sure. Yes. So at that time uh, that I started this FinTech 50 list and I became obsessed with Bitcoin, um, I was a freelancer for Forbes and, um, uh, at that time is when I started the podcast Unchained, which um, it'll have been seven years next week. I think actually, I, I believe the uh, the launch um, episode was I think on June fourteenth, twenty sixteen. So, yeah, um, yeah. So I uh, then later started working there full time. But while I was there, the downloads became so big that. Um, it just became apparent that I should probably just leave and just do that. And so then I was doing the podcast and working on my book and that came out last year. And so um, this past winter, we changed the website. So it's not just a podcast website anymore. And now there's like news and kind of learn type articles and videos and uh, yeah, we have a newsletter. So it's really branched out from just the podcast. And now it's like its own little media company. Yeah, what's really extraordinary, and I, I was going to kind of just really jump into that, and that is you're really a Unchained is now a media company. It's really not just um, a podcast, which is pretty extraordinary. I was I was I was checking this literally this week. 
was uh, the 500th episode of Unchained, or last week was the 500th episode, um, which is pretty extraordinary. 25 million views and downloads. Um, I mean, did you ever imagine when you left for no. where we were headed? Yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's so funny because when I first launched the podcast, I only did it every other week. And in fact, um, Forbes, so I always owned the podcast outright. However, I launched it as part of a series of podcasts that Forbes uh, was launching in in that summer of 2016. And um, after the first season, they stopped, they just dropped it. And so I had to find my own sponsor so I could keep paying the engineer and all that. And um, I remember, you know, in the fall of 2016, I was practically begging people to sponsor this show. Like, like, it was so hard. Like, I couldn't really find anybody. And then finally, there was a company that had done a website for, you know, one of the crypto companies. And they realized, like, oh, there's this whole industry and there's all these new companies. Like, maybe if we advertise here, we can, you know, get people to use us for um, their website. And so they were the ones that were willing. Um, and it's just fascinating because obviously now, I mean, everybody's sponsoring everything. There's like conferences all the time. There's, you know, tons of podcast sponsorships going on. And I mean, it's just um, a completely different thing. But yeah, it's just fascinating how, um, like I said, when I started it, it really seemed like a pushing a boulder up the hill <laughs> because I, I loved podcasts. I loved crypto. So I really wanted to do it, but it didn't seem like people were that interested. What was pretty extraordinary about crypto and then really what you do is um, it's it's crypto is everything, right? It's environmental, it's policy, it's technology. So you're really, and, and the, the guests run the gamut of those people, everyone from, you know, I, uh, law enforcement um, to, you know, uh, builders of, of the technology, um, yeah. you know, across the different space. So, you know, you, you become an expert on all these little things. It's so beyond financial services. Um, what are the, of those 500, and I know this is a really tough question. It's like, <laughs> it's like asking which your favorite child is. Uh, but what, what, what are the ones that really stand out to you that really had, you felt like had a really significant impact or you think about all the time, look, sort of looking back on, on, on those, all, all those 500. Well, so actually it's technically more like 650 because I used to have this other podcast called Unconfirmed on a separate feed. Yes. Uh, we just abandoned after a while. We just moved everything to the main feed. Um, but I would say that probably um, there are certain episodes that stand out in my mind. Um, one of them is one that we featured on that 500th um, episode that kind of picked different highlights from um, over the years. And Frankly, it's one that is very newsworthy this week. Um, it's an interview I did in 2018 with CZ or Chengfeng Zhao, the CEO of Binance. And I was asking him about regulation because, you know, it was pretty obvious right from the get-go that he was doing this sort of like Uber slash Travis Kalanick strategy of regulatory arbitrage. And, you know, I questioned him on that. And hilariously, I still remember this because I thought it was so funny. He said, um, you're questioning me um, the way, like he, because he, sorry, because what I was getting at was that, you know, the US regulators will take jurisdiction if they think that you are serving US customers. And he either was unaware of it or he was pretending like he was unaware or he, I, I don't know. But what he said to me was, he said, you're questioning me like, you know, I, I'm a person who doesn't like hot weather and you're telling me that I have to live in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was so funny. Wow. And the other thing was that um, he also, uh, and I don't remember if this was the same interview or a different one because he came on the show later, but um, 
I said to him, hey, like B&B looks like a security. And um, Cass Piancy, who is, um, he does like crypto critics, uh, what's it called? Crypt- crypto, yeah, critics corner podcast. Um, you know, they're, they're all like critical of things going on in crypto, but he tweeted um, and he just thought it was so funny that when I questioned CZ about that, CZ then proceeded to describe BNB exactly like according to the definition of a security. He was going on and on about how finance was incentivized to make sure that it would succeed and to make sure, you know, that it would, um, that the price would go up. And like, I mean, it was just like, I was saying, hey, it sounds like you're describing a security. And then he's like, no. And instead then proceeds to describe BNB exactly the way that, yes, the securities regulator would say, that sounds like a security. So, um, you know, what's interesting to me also about that episode is, like I said, I did that interview in 2018 and here we are in 2023. And it's like literally the same exact issues that are in this complaint. I mean, granted, not the token stuff, but, you know, about like serving U.S. customers and, um, you know, uh, yeah, they think they're like uh, uh, not being in the U.S. or or they're um, even kind of uh, being caught, like admitting that they know they're serving U.S. customers and things like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it wasn't like I was quote unquote warning him, but certainly by my line of questioning, you know, he should have caught on that like, okay, yeah, if a journalist even and not a regulator is, is figuring out that like, you know, this may not be the direction you want to go, like maybe they should have um, changed changed their tack earlier. Yeah, it's interesting. This is probably, I probably don't need to say this, but for our listeners, this is the week where SEC took action against both Binance and Coinbase for, for myriad sort of reasons. But really um, particularly for uh, listing unregistered securities. And, and I think we'll see this play out um, in the courts and potentially Congress um, for really some time, but really kind of an extraordinary week in the space, sort of the two, arguably the two most important um, centralized exchanges and and uh, the most important regulators now um, sort of, you know, head to head for sure. Yeah. And by the way, Ari, this is so funny because I just feel this urge in me. I'm so curious to ask you for your thoughts because this is the nature of things. No, absolutely. Turning the tables. I, uh, I know. I, I think it's a really interesting moment. I was, um, I was at a, uh, a, uh, conference or, or small group with Jeremy O'Leary yesterday. And he actually had, I think the best answer that I have heard yet for this question. And that is, look, we're now reached a point in the United States where all three branches of the U S federal government are dealing with this issue uh, in pretty meaningful ways, right? You could look at the White House executive order and the response from every agency, right? That's now thinking about crypto. You are now seeing, you know, activity on Capitol Hill, maybe moving more quickly, given some of these actions. Uh, I proposed bill uh, last week that actually does create that sort of Mika style framework for crypto has definitions around sort of who is going to regulate securities or commodities. And then finally, and maybe most importantly right now, we're going to see this play out in the courts. Um, you see sort of uh, you know, Coinbase has uh, you know asked a court to order the SEC to provide some clarity around some of these issues. Obviously, you saw the SEC take action against Coinbase and Binance. So I think it's, I, I thought it was just a fabulous answer because like there's a world in which regulators say, hey, we don't want to touch this space. And we're actually seeing something completely the opposite here. We're seeing, you know, regulators actually start to act, um, but hopefully that will result in more clarity from from Capitol Hill. But yeah, I mean, I can't help but wonder when you say um, we're starting to see regulators act. Do you think that their acts not, are not, not starting not starting sensible? Obviously, they've been acting for some time. Look, I, I think that the, I think part of the issue is that you know, having spent 
um, a long time uh, in the DOJ and then a treasury, I think regulators are always going to act. And I think what, what's so important is for Congress to provide the rules of the road. Right. Um, but but and, do you think that these actions make sense? It, do you think it makes yeah. sense for the SEC to sue Coinbase? I, I think it's going to have to play out in the courts. <laughs> You're such a diplomat. <laughs> As are you. All right. Back to you, Laura. I knew you were going to do this. I will say that one of the one of the most fun things, and I have been lucky enough, as I said, to be on three times. Once to talk about Terra and stable coins. One to talk about um, Sam Bankman Fried's criminal case, and I think, uh, and and once to actually talk about Tornado Cash and what it actually meant. How how you know blockchain analytics like TRM does screening for 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 that. And I will say that they are always tough. Uh, conversations and you ask the really the tough right questions, but always fair. And I think that um, it's definitely sort of a skill that I've been trying to develop as a former prosecutor. <laughs> but like you know, try to do this uh, this this podcast. So, uh, but let me. Um, we're on kind of the topic I wanted to be on, and that is policy. Um, obviously, sort of that's very much how we're thinking about the world, right? Like you have so many different aspects of the space that you think about, but really for me, it's sort of this very much focus on policy and even more. Uh, on sort of the specific anti-money laundering illicit finance space. How how have you over the course of your career sort of covered, but also just thought about sort of the AML and crypto, right? We've gone from crypto's anonymous to everyone can trace every transaction. And the, the truth is probably somewhere in between. But where where are you on that? And how are you thinking about illicit finance in, in crypto? Well, so I have a few thoughts. Um, one is that something that has been really surprising to me is to see how the mainstream views crypto as being kind of a wash in criminal activity. And that that actually isn't the reality. And so I feel like frequently when I'm interviewed by some of the mainstream outlets, I have to actually just like bring the receipts. You know, I have to say, okay, like, you know, in the traditional financial world, um, there's probably about between two and five percent of all transactions that are illicit activity. And at least so far, what we've, you know, seen in crypto, um, it's less than one percent. And, you know, I have to say, like, these are from these reputable sources, et cetera, et cetera. And still I feel like that that message hasn't really gotten out there that much. And it's not to say that um, criminals won't be attracted. Obviously, uh, you know, the very first real use case of Bitcoin was the Silk Road. So clearly, um, it, you know, there I understand kind of like the reason why um, people have this conception. But, you know, the way crypto and Bitcoin were used back in, you know, 2012, 2013 is very different from how they're used today in 2023. And so... Um, just, you know, one thing I think about really is um, how how do we kind of cut through all that noise and all of these um, misperceptions with the facts? And interestingly, even when I present the facts, people still somehow don't hear it. And um, so I just find that um, that is something, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, that bothers me as somebody who's interested in facts and feel like they can help us and um, are the best uh, resource that we have for making decisions. Um, so, yeah. So basically, I um, frankly, of course, think that these are really thorny questions around, you know, um, how do you um, implement uh, certain controls um, so that bad actors don't get access to these 
systems or these assets, but then how also do you um, respect things like privacy, which I think is a really important right that people have. And it's something that is protected in the constitution. And um, it's something that I, as like a somewhat private person, really cherish. Um, And yet at the same time, of course, I don't want criminals using these things. So I feel like you know, what my role is as a journalist is to explore these thorny issues and get the experts on who really know. Um, I don't have an opinion on what the best way is to implement all these things. I just know that whatever the system is, it needs to be something that takes into account all these different priorities, which on the surface seem to either compete with or contradict each other, but that I feel um, using the tools of technology itself, you could probably find smart ways to, um, yeah, to support both um, priorities. It's it's so interesting, and I feel like I don't know. This is maybe the jumping off point. If I can sell it to you to an unchained sort of security versus privacy conversation, because I think it's really the the heart of what we're dealing with right now in the space. Right, like post nine eleven, this conversation occurred in airports and on city streets, and I think today it occurs on blockchains. And you know, in the wake of Tornado Cash, we had this conversation. Right, like how do you enable privacy for lawful users yet stop North Korea from laundering a billion dollars in in hacked funds? And I think that's really what what that's what good regulation looks like. And to your point, it's it's hard. Uh, Treasury put out a DeFi risk assessment, you know, a month or so ago. Um, I think that try to start to think about these kinds of issues. You know, is digital idea solutions, zero knowledge proofs, like what are the tech solutions to some of this stuff? So I think it's to me, it's like the most interesting question um, in the space right now. And I love that you're you know thinking about it in this way. Yeah. And, you know, my um, ancestry is Korean and actually some of it is North Korean. And so I totally think, you know, obviously the Kim regime is super evil and they are just like imprisoning the whole population in this country. And they're, you know, cutting off their access to information. And um, I mean, I just think what they're doing is terrible. So of course I'm in line with the notion that, yeah, they should not have access to this kind of money and, um, you know, be able to evade sanctions because, you know, there's make no mistake about it. When um, North Korean hackers get control of crypto assets, they are not at all benefiting the North Korean people. That money is not going to the everyday North Korean. It is just going to the dictatorship. That's it. It's just cementing power and control over this evil regime. And so, you know, in my uh, in my estimation, yeah, like we should uh, prioritize not allowing North Korea access. And yet, like I said. Like as an American, as a private person, I feel we also need to have that priority of privacy. So we need to figure out what the what the right balance is. And you know, earlier when I said you could use the technology itself to um, help um, prioritize both at the same time, like you know, some of these um, different things around like having viewing keys for auditors or for the government. Like you know, I feel like that could be a solution. You know, there's obviously. Uh, even further considerations about how that gets implemented that I'm sure a lot of people um, would have a say on um, that, you know, it's not just like as simple as what I just said. It's like, there's a lot of kind of nuances around even something like that. But um, I do feel that those should be explored. And, you know, people who have a much greater background in all these things than I do should um, dive into them and come up with, you know, what they feel is like a a really comfortable line. Because for instance, you know, I think what we saw with Tornado Cash, um, I probably, you know, would agree with the industry that like um, how the government implemented at least that first sanctions just on the contracts themselves. I'm not sure if that really um, is, it just felt like kind of a hammer on 
something that, yeah, needed probably more nuance. But I think you're right. As you said on my show, the government was very alarmed by what happened. And so um, they just wanted to do something hastily and didn't have the time to kind of come up with that more nuanced solution. Yeah, no, um, I, I, I think it's I think it's a really interesting question. And as we move away from this question of how do you regulate sort of the more centralized space, like, you know, centralized exchanges to this much more interesting question in my mind of like, how do you regulate in a truly decentralized world? Um, there's got to be these types of technology solutions um, for sure. Um, staying, staying with sort of policy more broadly for a moment, um, what have been sort of your the most interesting conversations you've had recently, either with guests or sort of in your um, in your work on sort of global policy issues, right? Like, obviously, we have this issue in the US right now around who's going to regulate, and it's taking all the oxygen out of the conversation in terms of what thoughtful regulation could look like. But that's not true in the rest of the world. There's some really interesting conversations happening about what a framework could look like. Where are you having or, or, or seeing those conversations happen? Well, this is going to be a little scoop for you because um, <laughs> this conversation between you and me is going to come out before the conversation I'm going to uh, oh, talk about. But okay. I literally just wrapped an episode about crypto regulation in Hong Kong. And the reason that I wanted to do an episode on that was because here we've got, you know, these um, enforcement actions that we're seeing in the U.S. that, um, I mean, they're they're maybe not, um, I, I guess, uh, sort of what you would expect. Uh, like if, if you're thinking of regulators going after bad actors, then, um, you know, I, I don't know if anybody would have put Coinbase on the list to to be sued by the SEC. So, um, you know, we have this sort of kind of extreme situation. To me, it's just like a knee-jerk reaction against the actual bad actor, which was FTX. Um, but it doesn't make any sense to me why Coinbase should be punished for FTX. But anyway, point is that against that backdrop, you know, you then are starting to see these other jurisdictions, ones that, um, at least in my opinion, um, come from governments that maybe some have some antithetical values to um, what we have here in the U.S. And so it's interesting to me to see, okay, so not only is it that Hong Kong is implementing these new, um, it's like a licensing regime for exchanges, and then soon it looks like they're going to be also rolling out um, regulations for stable coins. And um, that apparently is being very quietly sanctioned by the government in China. And uh, Chinese government officials are going to some of these different events. And, um, you know, people are saying that they're sort of calling it a testing ground potentially for, you know, opening up a little bit more of that activity in China. Who knows? Um, but when you uh, uh, complement that activity with what China is doing in terms of its private blockchains and the digital yuan, um, it does feel like that part of the world is realizing, oh, hey, here's this opportunity. Um, not only is it the next wave of technology, but it is also, um, you know, it has to do with money. And money is how China has really gained its power. You know, it's um, used its economic might to um, throw its weight around the world, even in areas that, um, yeah, have to do with like freedom of speech and, 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 um, and, you know, um, open information and, um, you know, areas of the world that are not typically censored. Um, and so when you look at how they're doing that and you realize like, okay, they recognize money is important. And um, they recognize also that the U.S. Uh, dollar is the global reserve currency. And they're probably, um, 
you know, feeling like, hey, like, you know, we should have a piece of that pie. And so maybe they're looking at their digital yuan as a way to start to nudge the U.S. dollar from um, its spot as the global reserve currency. And yeah, so maybe that's why they're kind of starting to open up to different crypto firms. Um, meanwhile, of course, you also have um, a lot of activity around that coming out of the Middle East, the UAE. Um, so, you know, generally, you know, it seems like a lot of crypto firms are recognizing like, oh, okay, these other jurisdictions are being much more welcoming to us. And so it does worry me a little bit that, um, you know, to my mind, the country that has the ideals that are kind of most in line with what the blockchain ethos really is about um, is somehow not uh, also the country that is fostering this. It, it is a little bit mind blowing to me. Um, but, you know, I would say that, hey, like the U.S. has been dominant in the tech, uh, you know, um, wave, uh, like the Internet. It's like Apple, Google, Facebook, Twitter, like Amazon, like literally all the most successful tech companies, they're all American. So, you know, maybe for true decentralization, maybe it's not a bad thing if um, crypto flourishes across the globe rather than just here. Um, but yeah, as an American, I'm a little bit like, wait, huh? yeah, what's going no, on? Does it make I'm, sense? I'm with you. Obviously, we work globally. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I'm an American who's worked in the U.S. federal government for a very long time. And I want this technology here. Um, I think one thing we know is the users are here. Um, so many of the builders are here. To your point about... Um, I actually, uh, there's a hearing today, I think, on dollar dominance in the uh, House Financial Services. And I actually testified on a hearing very, very similar to this one about, I don't know, six or eight months ago, um, where this was discussed. And one of the arguments I made was that Silicon Valley argument you're making, that we have to foster innovation in this next wave of the internet and, it, how, and how important that is. But it's, it's I mean, uh, and, 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 and we need to bake in democratic principles, um, you know, as we build, um, really, really interesting moment though, for sure. Um, the only other place I'd probably add to your list or maybe a couple other places is, is Europe, obviously with Mika, um, which different people have different views on, but everyone loves having some clarity around how to get a license, how you can operate. Ultimately the UK has put out some consultations. I think we're very hopeful. So, um, so we'll see, but yeah, we still get weeks like this in the U S yeah, yeah, and one other note that I would say is um, we were talking about this on that episode uh, about Hong Kong that I am releasing next week. Um, you know, Hong Kong obviously is good because it has these big financial markets, um, sort of comparable to like a New York or a London. However, um, there aren't that many crypto developers over there, and so that's kind of like one thing that um, you know just makes it different. You're right. Like in the U.S., not only do we have big financial markets, we have big and vibrant developer community. Um, you know, a lot of the um, big blockchains um, have come out of the US. Obviously, Bitcoin, we don't know. Um, you know, Ethereum is kind of a mix of Canadian and and a little bit American. Um, but it was largely incubated in Europe, actually. And so Mika, um, you're right, it's a positive step. And on top of that, there is a vibrant uh, crypto developer community in Europe. So right. uh, potentially. That's really, really well exactly. said. It, 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 interesting. Another argument I made, and I was with some folks at Circle yesterday, as I mentioned earlier, um, and, and they'll tell you, look, 98%, I think it is, of fiat-backed stablecoins are in US dollars. Um, and that shows that sort of in this private space, at least, um, you know, people who are t handling or, or dealing with or trading uh, stable coins globally are essentially trading in U.S. dollars, um, or at least in an asset backed by U.S. dollars, which is also a really interesting development when you talk about dollar dominance. 
Yeah. Well, um, there were a few tweet threads about this. I actually think Sam Bingman Freed had one of them, but it, yeah, it was either he or somebody. They were talking about how the fact that so many of the stable coins are denominated in US dollars shows that um, it just shows the primacy of the US dollar and how crypto actually is enforcing that. And something that was fascinating to me when I researched my first book was that even when I was interviewing Europeans or Americans, and I was asking them, uh, you know, about like, you know, some event, let's say in like 2015 or 2016 or whatever, they would always recount to me uh, the price in dollars, the Bitcoin price or the Ether price in dollars, even if they were, you know, like, um, yeah, European or Asian or whatever they were. And many of these people that I was interviewing, they were not Americans. They always, always, always quoted the price to me in dollars. And that's how they remember these prices. And yeah, if anything, so far, at least crypto has enforced um, the primacy of the dollar. However, what's fascinating is, um, you know, NFTs is the one area that's not priced in dollars, which is so interesting to me. Yeah, that is um, but you know. yeah, that's probably the first thing that's actually been denominated in crypto. I uh, I am going to let you go uh, manage your uh, media empire uh, unchained. Um, but before I do, one, one question. I am a uh, federal prosecutor who's been trying to do a uh, podcast or webcast for the last, I think I'm, I think I'm about 50 episodes. I'll have to count now that you have 500 under your belt. Um, What, what, what are tips that you've learned about doing a great crypto uh, or successful crypto podcast over the last 500 episodes? What, what does it take? What what makes a great, uh, a great episode? So I know uh, this might sound a little weird or hopefully it doesn't, but um, I've come to think of, doing a podcast as like writing an article in reverse. Um, so typically for an inter- for an article, you know, you do all the interviews and then after that you make the article and then it gets published. Um, but I think of writing a, sorry, um, making a podcast as I do all the research and I write this script and, and so what I mean is, sorry, so for an article, you do all the interviews and then you figure out like the structure and you kind of put it all together. Right. But for a podcast, you um, do all the research and then you come up with the structure. Then you write a bunch of questions that will kind of foster that flow of thought. And um, then when you go to quote unquote, perform the article, which is <laughs> sort of how I think of it in my head, I generally, um, like I, I know what I want them to say at any given point. You know, yeah. I like kind of have a map in my head of all the things that I want to cover. And then I have just written these questions to like elicit that information. Or, you know, if they don't actually give it all, then I'll kind of follow up with a comment or whatever to to just get that in there. Um, so anyway, so that's how I do it. And I know it's probably a lot more work than the average person wants to put in, but um, at least for me, um, then I know that I've really produced a quality podcast. Amazing. I, I'd say just like as someone who's been on and, and had the experience with you a few times, um, a couple of things are really interesting to me. One is your subject matter expert on whatever we're, comp- we're discussing. Um, and it's like, it's because you are about crypto overall, but you obviously you lean into whatever that topic is as well. And really, and, and you, you know, we, it's, it is a conversation where you're providing your expertise as well. That is something I try to do from a policy or, or law enforcement, you know, illicit finance perspective. The other thing is 
this is not scripted, right? Like, uh, you know, I've been done plenty of these where you get the questions. And all. You're asking really tough questions, and you're holding your uh, your guests to 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 answer them. You know, I uh, I remember I, I think I was just went on a little too long on the first question on the tornado ca- in the tornado cash one, and you cut me off and said, "Ari, like, no, this is what I'm asking you." And I, I was like, "All right," and I fell right into line. But that's I think that's really that 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 that's uh, that that's really important too, for sure. That is so funny. I don't remember doing that. Yeah, um, no, no, I remember it. Yeah, I think I think my wife gave me a hard time. She's like, she's like, that's why you just need to answer her question. Well, um, and, and, actually, and, one last thing that I yeah, wanted to say about that was that yeah. um, I what like I've had a few guests say things to me like that they're scared of me or things like that. I know everything about everything in crypto, and I'm like, no, I'm like, <laughs> I cram like crazy. I'm like researching so much before an episode. I don't know everything just naturally. It's like before I, you know, put this mic up to my mouth, I make sure that I know a lot about that topic. But like, like if you were to just stop me on the street and then ask me about some really obscure part of crypto, of course, I'm not going to know it. And so anyway, I just wanted to put that out there because I've had people make these comments and I'm like, don't you know that I come in prepared and that's why, but like, I don't just walk around knowing everything somehow magically. I think you probably walk around knowing a lot magically, but um, <laughs> yes, no, I also think you lean into to, to, to every episode. And honestly, the space is lucky to have you. And um, uh, I think you're just such a critical voice and bringing in critical voices um, so regularly. I think it's just... It's so important and, and congratulations on 500 and, and good luck on, on, on many, many more. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Awesome. No, thanks for coming on and, um, you know, stay tuned uh, for uh, our next episode of TRM Talks. Laura, thank you so much. Thank you.